Cornucopia Radio presents Life's full of uncertainty when you work deep undercover. Who's she? Who's he? Is she a bad guy? Is he a bad guy? If so, are they capable of harming me? Capable of violence? Who am I? Are you two people? Or does one take over from the other? It's an enigma. I, I, I don't know the answer, but I know it fascinates some people. They've told me as much. Some venues are more comfortable than others. Some places I could sense it was possible to relax, but only to a degree. Other places I had to be constantly mentally vigilant. Then you must deal with substances that mess with your head. Alcohol and cannabis all change one's perceptions of reality. <laughs> Have you ever been so drunk or stoned you end up fearful of making some big faux pas? Like telling the boss to fuck off. <laughs> Chances are you have. Or at least most of us have. Now, think of that feeling and multiply it by a thousand. It just gives you an inkling of the sheer willpower needed to concentrate while undercover to avoid slip-ups. The truth is, I could never allow a conflict to take place in my head, whether sober or not. I had to forget Steve Bentley and become totally immersed in the psyche of Steve Jackson. I could not afford a slip-up. My life may have been in danger. On June 10th, 1976, we met Blue and Mac. They were in the new inn and we got into conversation with them. We didn't know then that Blue was to play a big part in our undercover future. An exciting part. And, on one occasion, a downright scary part. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators, UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years, and then retrained as a lawyer and practiced in criminal law. Now they're both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. Throughout this series, they'll discuss the cases they're reviewing and interview relevant parties including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is the counter-drug investigation Operation Julie, which took place in the mid-70s and an interview with one of the undercover agents involved in the investigation, Stephen Bentley. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody, and we hope you're enjoying listening to the story of Operation Julie and the role that Stephen Bentley uh, played in that operation. We're both really fascinated by undercover policing, aren't we? Oh, definitely. The uh, The topic is uh, in the media all the time at the moment with, for various reasons. And going back all those years, it's still anything with intrigue and undercover operations is always sought after, isn't it? Yeah, so we hope that by bringing the story of this investigation to the podcast, that people that are listening will find it as exciting, as compelling, as interesting as we do. But if you're joining us for the first time, we'd better tell you where we are with the story. So do you want to give a brief overview, John? Yeah, the first part we covered was the premises known as Plas Lissin, which is a, a large house in mid Wales where at the start of Operation Julie, it was suspected that in those premises was a illegal LSD manufacturing uh, laboratory. And Stephen Bentley and others were tasked with doing observations and some surveillance work there to see what actually was going off. There was activity. Unfortunately, the uh, activity ceased and they, they left the premises before any arrests were made. But that was the start of, of the operation. And I think from 
From then on, Stephen moved on to Llandawi Brefi, where he got an undercover buddy, Eric, who he met for the first time. And then they went to Llandawi Brefi. Their target was uh, a man called Alston Hughes, who was um, also known as Smiles, for obvious reasons. Yes, after the laboratory had shut down and moved away, the next phase was the start of what really is the undercover police work, which is was sort of very new at that time, and certainly to the extent that Stephen and Eric carried out. And that was where the infiltration took place, as, as we hear, with smiles. So before we go back to Stephen, so that he can explain uh, what came next, shall we do a little detour? Because although it's important for an undercover officer to have a believable and feasible cover story for his undercover life, there's also got to be a story for the life that uh, that he's left, people back at the police station, people that, that he worked with. Yes, I mean... By the nature of being a police officer, you're you're nosy, nosy. and yeah, nosy, and obviously got an inquiry in mind. And when people, if it happened and it doesn't happen in that way, they just disappear into thin air. You'd ask the question, where they've gone. So although you have cover stories for the operational work outside the police station, you've also got to give an explanation as to where that officer has gone, in in particular Stephen Bentley. Well, we thought we ought to try and contact somebody who knew Stephen at that time, a work colleague, and ask them where they thought he'd, he'd gone and why he wasn't around for such a long time. So I think, John, it's, uh, it's time to pick the phone up again. Yeah, my, my name is Eddie Reid and I, I was a member of the Hampshire Constabulary from 1975 until 1983. Uh, Steve was a a Liverpool lad and uh, a big Liverpool FC fan. And uh, the, the the first time I met him was actually in the canteen at Woodchurch. But when I began to speak, Steve paid a lot more attention to my accent than I expected him to. And I, I later realised that his father was from Glasgow as well, from Govan, in fact. And uh, Steve understood every single word that I said because of that. Because he was a Liverpool fan, he never actually called me Eddie at any time. He always called me Kenny, after his Liverpool hero, Kenny Dalglish. Uh, but we, we always got on very well. And then it was in early 1976, I realised that I hadn't seen him for a while, and, and Norwegian called me Kenny in ages. So I, I, I spoke to Detective Sergeant Alan Stovall, who was also my next-door neighbour, and I, I just asked him where, where Steve was. I hadn't seen him for a while. And he replied, uh, he's on a course, that's all he said. And uh, I found that quite surprising because he was a highly regarded detective and I, I couldn't understand why, what he would benefit from a, from a, any type of course. But I just left it at that and thought no more about it. How long was Stephen actually, if I use the word missing, how long was he missing for? Well, it, it was almost a year and it was it was an early... But because we were a subdivisional station, we all, we had every daily newspaper delivered to the station as a matter of course. And uh, it was in early 1977 that the newspapers arrived and one of our section officers took, took them upstairs to put in the canteen. And uh, he noticed on the front page was a a story about a, a massive drugs 
operating in Wales. And uh, he, he, he flicked through the rest of the papers, and every single newspaper carried the story. Some were middle-page spreads, and others were front-page news. And uh, that was the first time that Operation Julie came to public notice, really. And was it at, from the photographs that were in the newspaper that you recognised Stephen as being one of the undercover officers? Yes, it was. I, it was. It was later in the day I came on duty, and uh, I looked through the, one of the papers, and it was a centre page spread, and there was a photograph of two guys who looked for all the world like hippies, and I recognised Steve straight away. He, instead of being the clean cut guy that I, I knew him as, he he had long hair and a beard and a woolly hat. He just looked like a hippie, and uh, I then realised he hadn't been on a course at all. <laughs> He'd been in part of this this operation, Julie. How did you feel when you saw the newspapers carrying the story of Operation Julie and St- and Stephen being very much part of it? Well, I, I was I was very proud of him to be honest. I, I hadn't we, we got on really well. And I hadn't seen him for a year, and uh, when I realised where it had actually been, I just I was absolutely astonished, and I was I was very proud of him. Because that kind of operation back in the mid seventies was very unusual, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, that, that that operation was probably the biggest operation that had taken place anywhere at, at, at that time, and it was it was it was huge news. And the absence of Stephen was was uh, covered by people saying he'd gone on a course. We now know why, and it was a security issue, wasn't it? That that clearly nobody could know other than a handful of people what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the, the detectives, Sergeant Alan Stovall at Woodchurch, he knew. But, and it was him I asked, but he, he he didn't tell me any more than he was on a course. That's all he, that's all he said. He didn't enlarge on it, and I just I didn't question it. And do you keep in touch with him now? Yeah, I, I, I've 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 kept in touch with him probably the last maybe four or five years. I've been in touch with him because he's out he's out in the Philippines now, and uh, we we converse by email frequently. And he he still calls me Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> It's not unusual, is it, that people come and go at police stations, um, people move on to a different station, people can even change forces, and sometimes they're seconded onto uh, other units? No, the general public will see a uniformed police officer either on the beat or in a police car, and quite rightly imagine that's that's what the police do, but behind all that is a numerous different departments of CID and squads and drug squads and all sorts of different things where at some stage having everybody has to serve in uniform when they join certainly at that time and then move on and go to different areas so it isn't unusual that people move about they even change forces as you say Stephen did so to disappear with an explanation is quite accepted where it would be odd is if somebody just disappeared and nobody knew where they'd gone or saw them anywhere around the station or, or the areas where they're working, hence why a cover story is given. And in this case, it was to go on a training course, which would have been accepted and, and as time goes by, it just drifts into reality. And I think it's fair to say that the officers that work undercover they come from the rank and file of the force, don't they? At that time, certainly, the it was 
as we keep saying, it was a new thing really to do it to this extent and for so long. So at that time, officers were just, well, sort of volunteered or were rung up because they were deemed to be suitable. As in this case, Dick Lee, the inspector, rang Stephen Bentley and asked to see him and knew him, knew his background, obviously assessed the fact that he was a bright guy and was capable of doing it. And that at that time was the was the process that it went through. So one day he'd be in the drug squad or CID and then eventually transferred onto this and similar inquiries. But I think even today, the way that you look at undercover officers, they are they are regular people with regular lives. So they've got partners and boyfriends and girlfriends and wives and husbands and and children and that can be more of an issue leaving behind your normal home life has got to be far more difficult than leaving behind your work colleagues life and although other professions uh, go away from home and leave family behind such as such as the military or long-distance lorry drivers, pilots, diplomats, coach drivers, all that kind of thing. But the unique thing about an undercover police officer is that he doesn't just physically leave his family. He mentally and emotionally has to leave them behind because he's got to reinvent himself, hasn't he, as uh, as somebody else and uh, be a different person and live a different life. And that must be really difficult, living that life, who you are and who you have to be. Well, at that time, as we we have mentioned, that it was a new uh, direction the police went into undercover policing, certainly to the extent and the length of the deployment of Stephen and Eric and others. And, of course, at that time, nobody knew how long this operation was going to last. It could have been a very short one, very long one. And as it turned out, it was quite a length of time. And the effects on their personal life became profound and and a problem in the end. And of course, you know, as you rightly say, you live in two people, your home life, and also this, this person that's been invented and deployed into the Welsh hillsides to to try and infiltrate a drug gang so it's very complex and very difficult and and certainly not easy to do well we're going to go back to Stephen now and it's fair to say that there was an unexpected turn of events that saw Stephen and Eric traveling to Liverpool with a character from Clandawi Breffy who was known as Blue and it was in Liverpool that they had uh, they had quite a scary encounter I understand that uh, as well as Operation Julie there was a spin-off that took you to Liverpool with Blue which was unexpected but helped to uh, establish your credentials if you like with the community in Wales uh, what actually happened? What happened was uh, uh, this character Blue the hippie character that I've mentioned before, he knew Smiles very well, and he introduced us to a lot of characters in Mid Wales, all around the Tregaran, Glendowie, Brevi area. And uh, one day we were around at Blue's house. He just moved from the cottage he was renting close to Smiles. He'd moved to a much bigger place in a little village called Cillian, 
which is not too far from Glendary uh, Brevi. And um, Blue was, unusually for him, he was in a very agitated state. He eventually asked us for a lift up to Liverpool. So we obviously queried why Liverpool. He said, oh, I've got to meet my, uh, my Canadian mate there. He said he spends most of his time in Miami, but he's actually from Vancouver. And he gave us this uh, background on a guy that he called Bill, being a pal of his. And he said he's in the UK. He's been to the Isle of Man. He's flown in from the Isle of Man to Liverpool. And he's been looking for a, a very fast motorboat, uh, MTB, I think he called it. But the thing that interested us was the uh, when he mentioned MTB's fast boats, we thought, oh, wow, we, this, this could be something because, uh, you know, fast boats are often used for uh, importing drugs where one leg of the importation is to drop it in the ogin in the ocean. And then the boat goes out very speedily, very fast boat, goes out and picks up the contraband in the water and brings it ashore to be distributed to whichever country it's been landed in. So... That in itself was of great interest to us, and we readily agreed to go to Liverpool and, and meet his friend Bill. So when we did, you know, of course, me spending, me being effectively from Liverpool, I say effectively, I wasn't born there, but was raised in Liverpool from the age of 12 months of age. And uh, I'd only left Liverpool in the early 70s, and this was 1976. So... Uh, I was more than a little bit apprehensive uh, going back to my roots in Liverpool undercover, thinking, oh, my goodness, I hope somebody doesn't recognise me. Uh, anyway, long story, we, we took him in the van up to Liverpool and uh, that had its, uh, its first hairy moment was just after uh, we came out of the Mersey Tunnel. I was driving and saw the blue lights, the police car, and uh, it stopped us. Uh, gave us a bit of a grilling because we looked like uh, members of a rock band with the long hair and the denims and the beards, all three of us. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, goodness, I hope nobody's got any drugs on board. I know I didn't. And I'm confident Eric didn't, but I wasn't sure about Blue. So, but anyway, he didn't search us, and, uh, but he did a, a PNC check. The PNC, I think, had come into existence uh, Police National Computer, for those that are wondering what that stands for. That had come into being not that long before, but uh, I was aware that the PNC was now fully operational. And of course, Eric and I had these aliases, our, our cover names, and we had the false driver's licenses and the uh, false criminal records. So we uh, gave him our details, the, the policeman in our details, and uh, he didn't like the look of us at all. But he, he gave us a, a clean bill of health because there was nothing we weren't wanted or anything like that. So we, we, we set off again. This was in Lime Street, if anybody knows Liverpool. It's the big, yeah, one of the big thoroughfares in, in Liverpool, in the city centre, near the railway station, near the, the famous hotel, the Adelphi Hotel. Um, but the, the place that Bill was staying in was a little rundown place called The Feathers. So we, we went into the Feathers Hotel, asked for, uh, or Blue asked for Bill. And we went up to his room, met Bill in his room, uh, and uh, we didn't really talk to him. It was Blue and, and Bill catching up on old times. And, uh, you know, he spoke in this very strong Canadian slash American accent. You know, it was clear they were old buddies and Bill was 
there on his bed and he was drinking really, really hard. Offered us some booze, I think it was Bacardi, but I can't remember exactly now. But we drank quite a bit with him and all of a sudden he, he announced, that's it, let, let's have a change of scenery. So off we went, we had a couple of pints in a bar nearby and ended up in a, an Indian restaurant in, in Bold Street. That's where Bill first started talking to us about his plan to import cocaine into the UK and big, big quantities. Reckoned he knew the main guy in Bolivia and he was shipping loads of it into into America and to Canada via Miami. And he wanted to set up a new operation importing it into the UK, into Britain. So we talked about it a little bit there, but Blue tried to hush him up. But Bill's one, he was quite a character, strong character. He wasn't for hushing up for too long. And we ended up going to a, a nightclub we called the She Club. Bill managed to drop one of the uh, bouncers a good few quid. I think it was about 20 quid, which was a lot of money in those days to make sure we got in. So in we went. And uh, as the night progressed, I actually got on the dance floor for some crazy reason. I decided to dance barefooted and a young lady joined me saying something to the effect of, oh, I've always wanted to dance with somebody that dances barefooted. I said, well, look, there you are. Now you've got your chance. So we were dancing for a while, went back to the table. You know, I could see Eric and Blue and Bill were in earnest conversation. And Eric turned around to me as I arrived at the table and said to Bill, I don't know, he said, ask him. So I'm thinking, what the hell are they on about? So um, Bill came out with it even more directly. He spelt out uh, the details of this cocaine importation and said, you know, can you do it? Uh, so I kind of went along with the role and said, uh, you know, thought about it for a minute or two. And I said, yeah, it's a possibility. It could be a go. Yeah, depends on a few things. Then all of a sudden his mood switched completely. And uh, he glared at me and he just said, out of the blue, he just said, are you guys cops? So I thought about it for a split second and, uh, and I decided to react uh, in a humorous way and just laughed at him and, and said something. I can't repeat what I said, but it's in the book because it involves some very bad language. Then all of a sudden, he, he went all stony-faced again and he, he put his two fingers together and uh, put them against my head, like imitating a gun. And he just went, well, if you are, if you guys are, and then he just went, pop. And he would, then he was silent. And I, I tell you what, it was scary, very, very scary. And uh, and then just after that, the, the girl that I'd been dancing with, she was with her mate. They were both nurses in Liverpool on the night out, and they came back to the table. So the whole mood changed again, and we carried on uh, talking small talk until Blue, Bill, Eric, and myself, and the two girls, we all ended up going to uh, some Shabin. Uh, illegal drinking club, not too far from Bold Street. I can't remember exactly where it was, where we got a bite to eat and a few more drinks. So now I don't know, it's getting to about, I don't know, it must be six in the morning. 
eventually a crash in my bed and thinking, bloody hell, that was quite a performance. You know, trying to remember everything that was sent to us. Again, long story short, we headed back, uh, all, all of us, minus the girls, we headed back in the van. So that's uh, me, Eric, uh, Blue, uh, and Bill in the van because the plan was for them to rent a car in a nearby place, nearby village. Some farmer rented out cars, so the, the Blue knew. So that was the plan. They were going to rent a car and they were going to go onto the south coast, Pool and Southampton, looking for this motorboat because uh, the story was that Bill had sold a boat recently for a considerable amount of money. So he had money to spend on a on a boat that he wanted to use, obviously use for the drug trade. And uh, so we drove all the way back and he, he carried on talking about what the deal was and he was spelling out the amounts that were going to be involved, uh, how much it was going to be. I think, it, if I remember rightly, it was something like 24,000 US dollars a kilo, you know, with, with sliding scale for, uh, for quantity discounts and that sort of thing. You know, and again, he kind of did the stony face thing again and, you know, threatened us with, you know, any rip-offs and da-da-da-da-da-da. So basically what he was trying to say to us was, uh, you know, I want you guys involved, but uh, can you come up with somebody who's got that kind of bread money to, uh, you know, to be the, the main man in the UK? So we dropped him at the farm uh, to get the rental car. And then uh, we found out that they planned an overnight stop in Bristol. We'd already said that we were going on to Bristol. We didn't say why to after we dropped them off. And that was a mistake because we actually ended up leading them into Bristol and they were following us. We were in the van in front and they were in this rental car behind. And, you know, we were kind of crapping ourselves thinking, I wonder if wonder if the van's been bugged or whatever, you know. We were me mowing to each other and, uh, you know, silent gestures, this, that and the other. It was like quietly really scary. Anyway, eventually we dropped them off at the bottom of the M32. Eric gave them directions and um, they left and we jumped back in a van. But before we went to Eric's house, of course, he lived in the suburbs of Bristol. We, you know, we adopted every anti-surveillance measure known to men in case they were following us. They weren't. But so we went back to Eric's, uh, saw Jan, his, his partner, and, and revisited the whole episode. It was very scary, very scary indeed. So obviously it warranted a visit into Devizes the next day to see Dick Lee. And Dick Lee didn't know what to make of it. We went through it, chapter and verse, the whole story, didn't leave anything out. Gave him the whole story, quantity, you know, quantities, prices. And again, I can't repeat uh, on a podcast exactly what Dick Lee said. But the second word was me and the first word began with F. <laughs> So, you know, if effectively what he was saying was we'd given him a headache because there we are investigating this uh, massive LSD network. And here, you know, there's Eric and I. We've stumbled into this huge uh, conspiracy to import very serious quantities of cocaine into the UK from Bolivia via Miami. So... Dickley's brief then in relation to the cocaine was just string them along, you know, string blue along, really. 
uh, which is what we did. We, we did that for uh, oh, several weeks, if not a couple of three months. You know, every time we saw blue, there were some serious discussions. And, uh, you know, we kept stringing along, him along, but he was quite happy. You know, he just said, well, you know, just, you know, do it when you can. And he came out with quite a lot more detail. And on one occasion, we visited him to string him along. We, uh, we'd actually, we thought we'd reinforce our credentials a little bit more. And we'd, uh, we'd borrowed some uh, uh, confiscated hashish from the Bristol drugstore and a, a sawn-off shotgun. And we secreted those in a hidden compartment in the back of the van. So as we were leaving Blue, talking about the cocaine thing, Eric said, oh, come and have a look at this. Like, all casual. So Blue came out, nosy, wondering what Eric's got to show him. So he showed him about, I don't know what it was, 13 great big packages, I think, or 13 pounds. 13 seems to stick into my head. 13 pounds of Lebanese hashish and, uh, and a sawn-off shotgun. So it was uh, Blue's turn to go, F me. So, you know, it, it really established the whole Blue and the whole uh, Liverpool, the cocaine thing, really helped establish our credentials in that area and particularly with Smiles. Did anything ever come of the uh, the the deal or, or the characters involved or, or did you just leave it? No, that, well, that's an excellent question uh, because, uh, you know, we were told to uh, string Lou out, in other words, the cocaine thing. And as I've said, that's what we did. And eventually, uh, Dick Lee had to make a decision. And what he actually told me was that the whole cocaine thing was handed over to the DEA and that both Blue and Bill ended up serving a lot of time in a federal penitentiary uh, in the US. I mean, having been been involved in similar uh, operations, your hands are full with what you've got on, on the go without taking more on. And I can understand the DEA, the Drugs Enforcement Agency from America, would have taken it on board and dealt with it, which seems to be the case, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right, especially seeing there was the uh, Miami connections and the connection to South American cartel, Bolivia in this case and not Colombia. But yeah, that, it all makes sense. And of course, Bill had these connections to Miami, to Vancouver. The other thing I failed to mention was that uh, he bragged to us that uh, he called himself a fixer, really. He said he was in with a, a load of uh, lawyers and doctors and dentists and that type of people, professional, who put up the money for these massive drug bonds. And uh, you know, obviously, they never went anywhere near it, and neither did he. That's uh, that was that's what he was telling us about. That he never went near the product itself. He kind of just fixed things, you know, made things happen, and it all makes sense. I mean, you know how it works, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people do from reading newspapers, reading books, and uh, watching TV films or, or films at the cinema. That, that's you know, there's always a Mr. Big. So there was a strong American, Canadian, Florida, Miami, Florida, South American connection. So it was no big surprise that the Drug Enforcement Agency took it all over eventually. As, I, as I've said, you know, we, we had enough on our plate.
Well, that's a story and a half, isn't it? The uh, the Liverpool aspect. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that even then, even going back to the 1970s, that this was worldwide. There were other countries and other networks being involved in the importation, exportation, distribution, circulation of of drugs. So even though that LSD was being manufactured in the UK, we have got other countries involved, Bolivia with the cocaine, but it doesn't just involve Bolivia and where it ends up. It's going via other countries as well. So a global network. Well, we've got to bear in mind that these uh, uh, drug dealers, obviously the LSD were, were interested in Operation Julie, was manufactured here mainly, although it, it is manufactured in other parts of the world. But when you, you get into the drug dealing world and other criminality involving anything you can think of, stolen property, diamonds or whatever, gold bars, it's all traded around the world exactly the same as legitimate businesses based in London and other parts of all the major cities in the world. It's all the same thing. They're trading legitimately, whereas the criminals trade illegally. And, of course, one product leads to another, and contacts are made exactly the same as a private company. And it just goes to show you, doesn't it, that that the end point is it might be a small-time dealer walking into a pub and handing over a, a wrap. That might be the end point. But it's what goes on before you get to that end point. Different countries, different networks, risks involved, even corruption. Yes, the, the product itself that came to the UK, I mean, the LSD was manufactured here, which which was a, a chemical process, but other drugs, cocaine, heroin, are grown and come from Asia and other parts of South America. And it's the same going back to how I look at it as a business. You have a manufacturing base, a supply and sales department that move this product on throughout the world and eventually ends up in a pub in any town and city in this country. But there is a supply line. And, of course, that involves people exchanging money or whatever for that product and making a profit out of it. And that's that's the basics of, of what the criminal world lives on. Yeah, but just going back to um, Stephen and Eric's scary moment, if you like, in, in Liverpool. What do you think about that? Bill holding two fingers up to Stephen's head. And, and as Stephen described, his mood had changed. And he holds up two fingers to his head and basically says, if you cops, this is what you're gonna going to get. But I think what he says is he holds the two fingers up as a gun and says, pop. I mean, that might be something very quiet and very but that's got a huge message behind it hasn't it well we've got to bear in mind that these people on one side in Stephen's case are criminals on his side they're undercover cops who are both psyching each other out and seeing who blinks first and who makes a mistake and what the mood is as, as, as we've described and of course you know equally they're tense because they're selling very expensive product and obviously want to make a lot of money. And not only the police are after them, other agencies, customs, military or whatever, but into 
rivalry and gangs and robbing each other. So they're aware of that. They, they, they live in that world and they know this happens. And equally, both sides are on edge. Yeah, so, so really the fact that these gangs carry guns or, or carry weapons, that might not be because of any police intervention. It might be just to protect themselves from the rivals, from other gangs. Well, my I've never done in my service any undercover police work, but I've been involved in those type of operations on the the periphery, so to speak. And gangs carry weapons more than likely to defend themselves against rival gangs, robbing them, because, as I say, the the product and the money is vast. And at some point, the buyer and the seller or their representatives have got to meet and an exchange take place. And at that point, is they are very vulnerable. If one gang wants to rob the other, that's the point it's going to happen. You're either going to steal the drugs or steal the money. So to protect themselves, that's why the gangs unfortunately, have grown into what we've got today, very big and powerful and use violence to protect their turf, they're more worried about getting robbed than possibly by being arrested. You can't go to a police station and say, I've just been robbed of... Of my drug money. Of my drug money (laughs) or my drugs, because they can't. So they take the precautions like they do and carry guns or other weapons and go in numbers. So I wonder what Smiles and and his, his mates thought about Stephen and Eric's other drug dealings and if that enhanced their reputation. And certainly that was the question that we asked next, wasn't it? What uh, effect did it have on Smiles and all the others involved when they learnt that you were sort of getting involved in yet more drug orientated dealings and did it enhance your position? I think it did without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, it's very difficult to, uh, it's difficult in some ways to answer that because it's just not possible, it's impossible to put myself inside the head of somebody else. But So I don't know what was going on in Smiles' mind, but... uh, I don't think there's any doubt about it that it enhanced our credibility a thousand percent. You know, as did other smaller incidents where, uh, you know, I think I was I think I, I was describing earlier how in the pub one day some guys were telling us about a hashish importation scam they were involved in and wanted to know if we wanted to become part of it. So all of these incidents, they kind of all mingled together to enhance our credibility. You know, you add all that up to the fact that we were doing odd jobs, chopping down trees, moving furniture, and purportedly buying and selling cars, which I stress we would have done if uh, called upon to do so. It wouldn't have been a problem. We'd have done it. And I'm sure the Dick Lee coffers... The Operation Juby coffers wouldn't have minded if we'd have made the odd hundred pound profit every now and again on a on a car deal. <laughs> you mentioned the compromise, as uh, it, as it's called, with the uh, with Bill. Uh, obviously, it's a common, to my knowledge, a common thing that people challenge new dealers or criminals or whatever if they're police officers, which 
I don't know what answer they're expecting to hear, really. But uh, Smiles tried it as well, didn't he? He did. The only two, the only two challenges we ever received was one from Smiles. After we'd been there quite some time, we gave him a lift one day from Lampeter back to the village, Clandowie Brevi, and no sooner had he jumped in. You know, he's very cunning, Smiles, you know. He didn't jump in, uh, break the ice, uh, and then kind of ask in a wishy-washy way. You know, as soon as he jumped in, he came out with it straight away. And it's not really asking. The way they do it, and it is common, the way they do it, it's put as an accusation. Not really as a question, although it sounds like a question. It's more of an investigation, and it's to see how you react. And as you say, the one thing that you can't say, there are a number of ways to deal with that situation. And the one thing that is not open to you is to say, yes, I am, stating the obvious. So I don't know. Well, I understand why they do it, trying to put myself in their shoes. And I suppose it's... They're intrigued to see the reaction. And with smiles, I just laughed it off straight away. And, uh, and so did Eric. And um, yeah, that's, that's the funny thing as well about working undercover with a partner. I know how I'm going to react. And I know how I think. But you're thinking, oh, my God, how's, how's Eric going to react? But he was fine. You know, he kind of, uh, I think I reacted first by laughing away because Eric was driving. I was sat squashed up in the middle and uh, Smiles was next to the door to my left and uh, I kind of laughed at him. And within seconds, he was talking, selling drugs to, I better not mention her name, her name's in the book, uh, but I won't mention it for the podcast. She's a well-known, she was a well-known singer in the 1970s and um, he, he was on about in the days back in Birmingham when he used to sell her drugs and various other things about drugs he started talking about almost immediately. Smiles was like that, you know, he, he lived on his wits. He wanted to know who people were, especially if they were total strangers. Uh, by this time, of course, we weren't, but he just couldn't resist it. And uh, he loved pushing buttons and see how people reacted. You know, it's an act of self-preservation, isn't it, really? I can understand it. Yeah, I think it. Uh, it, it the stories I've heard and uh, been a part of, it's as you say, it's just trying to drop it on your toes, see what happens, not expecting you to turn around and say, "Yes, I am an undercover police officer," but it it, it makes them feel better when you say you're not. I think. Well, <laughs> if that's the right way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, in essence, I think that's right. Uh, I think to analyse it just uh, very briefly and a little bit more, I think it's like. What I just said is that, number one, they're curious, uh, you know, so that's why they put the question, stroke, accusation to you. But the, the real thing is they're gauging, they're assessing your response, your uh, demeanour, your body language. It was clearly relaxed in our company. And uh, the classic example, of course, is when... Uh, he and his partner, Mary, permitted Eric to uh, babysit one night. Well, excuse me, if you've got any serious suspicions that somebody is an undercover police officer, that's the last thing in the world that you're going to do. Let them stay alone with your kids in your house. 
<laughs> Excuse me, no, it's uh, it, it it doesn't make sense, does it? You know, I I, I like the guy. You know, I got very close to him, um, and um, uh, there was one again, one particular night where Eric and I were sat cross-legged in Smiles's home, and I, I got to like the guy so much, and I kind of feeling a guilt trip. Because I know one day that uh, this guy's going to be busted and he's going to lose everything, his wife, his home, his kids, everything, because he's going to face some serious time in prison. And, uh, you know, I really did come, in my head, I, I really did very come very, very close. I was actually debating uh, whether to tip him off. I know that sounds uh, awful to some people, but, you know, you have to put yourself uh, or try and put yourself in my shoes. It's all very well being critical. But unless you're there, which I was, obviously, and uh, living this lie. Uh, and I, I got very close to the guy. I really did like him immensely. Anyway, I didn't tip him off. I would have been a pariah throughout the police force. Uh, that wasn't the only reason, I guess, some kind of in a strength in it honesty told me don't be so stupid you can't do that and i didn't so yeah there were there were a lot of incidents we we had some good fun we had some good laughs some good times together and uh, you know he was fun company i enjoyed his company when sally and i uh, visited the area spoke to a lot of the residents uh, in the new inn and around about obviously it was quite a long time ago when you did your role as an undercover officer, but they still speak very openly uh, about what happened, and nobody, and it was made quite clear to us, nobody had a bad word to say about Smiles and the other people involved, although they did what they did, which was totally illegal, and they got to, sent to prison for it. They were obviously well-liked people, and that's what you are portraying. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And of course, um, I mean, Smiles was known to virtually everybody in that village and in the surrounding area. And um, he was a very generous guy. I mean, Happy, who I've mentioned, uh, Smiles left us one day. I'm, I'm sure we were in the New Inn, and Smiles left us in the New Inn one day, and he was off to Lampeter. Uh, and the reason he was off to Lampeter was to go and buy Happy a, a brand new television set, a big colour jobby, uh, which would have set him back even in 1976. Well, I don't know. It's hard to hard to for me to recall what the prices were. But let's put it let's put it this way: it wouldn't have been cheap. And that was typical smiles. Very, very, very generous. And a very likable guy. He had he had oodles of charisma. Really did. I think I said to some, I've said to somebody in the past, and I say it again now. You know, if he hadn't been a drug dealer, he would have made a marvelous television personality. You know, he he's really got oodles of, uh, of charisma about him. A very charming man, good-looking man, uh, funny, witty. Uh, excellent company you know what else can I say no wonder I liked him I liked him a hell of a lot
Police officers are, are humans and they have human instincts and, and human emotions. That doesn't necessarily mean to say that they act on those instincts or emotions uh, or do their jobs less professionally. But it's naive to think that that they aren't there. And, and I think that's what Stephen found, that um, he was... He quite liked smiles and and the other associates. Yes, it it happens in everyday life, doesn't it? We've seen it many times, but in this particular case, smiles and all the other characters at the top of the tree, if we put it that way, in Operation Julie, were professional people. There were chemists, there were doctors, wasn't there? A GP, the lady was a GP, and all the other characters below, including Smiles, were were just everyday nice guys who hit on the fact that you could make money out of drugs and and have a good lifestyle and live in a secluded place in Wales where you could integrate in and have a jolly good time, as he did. And, and that's what Stephen walked into, wasn't it? Yeah, and sometimes criminals that are charismatic, they will commit a particular kind of crime because their charisma and charm... Uh, plays to utilise that that gift, for want of a better word. And certainly when you think about con men, you know, we've heard all this about romance fraud where people are drawn in online and over many, many months they converse with this charismatic person and they're drawn into it and drawn into it and they believe everything that, that they're being told, mainly because they're talking to somebody who's believable and feasible and a very charismatic person. And then that person will come with, oh, my daughter or my mother has got a serious illness and I've got to pay for care. I've got to pay for an operation. And then the person on this end starts sending out money and before you know it their whole savings have been spirited away and and it's just a scam but the point is that because they have got a big personality a charismatic personality they can bring people into that their way of thinking and getting them to part with lots of money or or assets well it comes down to everyday life doesn't it that Every day, people throughout the whole world meet other people who immediately they'll take to because they like them, the way they present themselves, the whatever they're trying to tell you or sell you in a salesman's case. If you can cross that barrier into somebody liking you, you're halfway there to selling them something. And that's what these people do, don't they? The, the, the smiles of the world and the con people and, and all the other criminals that we can talk about. If you can be pleasant and take money off people for whatever you're doing, it's far better than being nasty and robbing people, which also happens, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's something very different to somebody dashing into a bank and sticking a sawn-off shotgun up the cashier's nose saying, give me all your money and then running out with it. There's something very different about that to what you're, and we keep using the word charismatic, but what your likeable villain does in that it's over a period of time, 
it 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 draws you in and you get to like that person and that's why you do what they ask you to do yeah i mean everybody's heard of a likable rogue haven't that's they? right yeah and of course that's what a lot of them are they are likable people they've chosen the career path they've chosen and we choose or chose the police route and there's a very fine line i think between the two sides you know you can they or a lot of the people i've been involved with would make very good policemen because they've got that charisma that ability that pleasantness about them that people will believe them and and take them on board and of course you know when you meet people that you've dealt with in the past very often they say i wish i'd have been in the police and it's a it's a it's a sort of a a meeting of minds isn't it one's on one side one's on the other and if you 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 get on with each other both do the job and if they win they win if they lose they lose and we win and that's the way it works isn't it can you remember we were walking in the city one day we were coming across the marketplace and we were going back to the car and walking towards us was a very tall slim well-dressed middle-aged man who stopped and sort of said hi John how are you and and you had a bit of a chat and he sent very nice it was nobody that that I knew but after about five minutes you said cheerio to him and he he walked off and and we went um heading back to the car again and I said to you who was that then and you said that's Mr Euro reversible trouser buttons which was the and nickname. Which was the nickname that, that you gave him when you investigated, arrested him. Uh, and he did go to prison for stealing a lot of money off a lot of people. Mm. And and the reason we called him Mr. Euro Reversible Trouser Bond was if there ever was such a thing, he would be able to flog them. <laughs> and people would buy and them. And people would buy them. And that's how he operated. The likeable rogue. Likeable rogue. And... You know, no, he bore no grudge and, and vice versa. He, he did what he did and he had to serve his prison sentence for it. But deep down, he was a nice guy. And it's a shame some of some of these people, you know, your likeable rogues, that they don't put their persuasive talents to, to better use. But I think there's two reasons why people commit that kind of crime and one's boredom and the other one uh, is greed i mean the people i recall most of your good professional criminals and there is some very good professional criminals very clever people as in this case you, you know you've got people who are highly educated and a lot of it boils down to the fact that the board or whatever they're doing and they don't want to work nine five monday to friday they want excitement and excitement is the thrill of the chase, really. They they like the thrill of what they're doing, selling or dealing in whatever it is to make money. And we like it because we're the thrill of the chase to catch them. And when you get the two people meet, very often you, you, you're on the same page. One's a criminal, one's a cop, but the same basic human instinct. It's a battle of wits, battle isn't it? Battle of wits. And I always say it's like being on the chessboard. You move all the pieces around and whoever knocks the king or queen over, whichever it is, wins. And that's how it is. It appears you know more about crime than you do chess. Probably. <laughs>
Just turning back our attention back to undercover work, uh, there are officers who have lived undercover and they've done things like infiltrate protest groups or political factions, non-violent type groups. But then there are also officers who have gone undercover to infiltrate terrorist groups or or very violent groups. And there has been occasions when they have actually blown their own cover and 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 told them the true identity. And that is one very, very risky business, isn't it? It it happens because cops are human beings, aren't they? Same as anybody else is. And if the other side is more persuasive and charismatic than you are and persuade you that they're right and you're wrong and, and, and you fall for it or you, you actually genuinely believe in it, it happens. And the case I think you're mentioning is, is one of the protest groups, wasn't it, that was infiltrated by these undercover cops, which is all being aired in this inquiry that's going on in London. And having been embedded and infiltrated them for so long, he actually believed in himself in what they were trying to fight for. They weren't violent people in, in as much they were disruptive to companies that they were against. But deep down, he sided with them and, and in the end came out, didn't he, and said, I'm actually an undercover cop and I want to join you. Yeah, and I think for the for the people, for the groups that is infiltrated and the individuals that is, is met, that must seem like a, a, the betrayal's first hand i mean how do you accept how do you accept someone in the future who you have thought has genuinely liked you as a person or had a relationship with you or had children with you and then all of a sudden you find out actually he's not the person that you thought he was he is a cop um how, how do you how do you bolt those two parts together? I mean, the, as observers looking in, you don't see the chemistry that's gone before them and, and the, the group that they're involved in. And as far as I'm aware, that that particular case, that although they were horrified, they actually sympathised. And, of course, he, he did actually... Well, he had to leave the job because it was... Uh, a mess as it turned out but but basically his his thoughts were with them and I think he's still in contact with them I mean the whole undercover policing thing I know it's something that 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 really interests us and and we keep harping on about that but because it is such a a huge subject and it's such a controversial subject and it's so topical uh with this undercover inquiry going on at at the same time that that should be a project that we come back to and that we expand upon more and bring back to the podcast uh, when we've when we've researched it more thoroughly yeah i mean we've always been interested in it i mean as i've mentioned we collect books i read extensively on policing, undercover policing, espionage, which is the same thing, really. It's all undercover work, whether it's police or government work or whatever. And it's all 
been going on since time began. It's happened all the way through history and it'll go on forevermore because deep down that is the only way to find out what's really happening in government or criminal worlds is to infiltrate them and see what is actually going on. Although this inquiry is going on, I think things will change and improvements will be made, but the actual basic principle will go on forever. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you're right. It does give me it, it does worry me at times though when I think about the things that we're researching for podcasts and the searches that we put into the internet. If ever GCHQ were watching us, um we're looking at espionage, undercover policing, murders, criminality, all those kind of things. If I, if anybody was looking at what we look at, they would uh, they'd probably wonder what we're doing. Yeah, well, and not something as uh, as easy or as simple as a as a podcast. Unless you've been in that situation where you're truly living a double life, living a lie, and if you get close to somebody who's on the other side, you know, it's a very, very difficult role, it really is, and it, it does something to your head. I think everything we've heard so far just goes to show that undercover policing's not easy. Uh, certainly in the 1970s when there was no training whatsoever for undercover officers like Stephen, it took a cool character to put yourself in the position that, that Stephen put himself in. Yes, I mean, Stephen says himself, doesn't he, that uh, it was a steep learning curve and they, they learnt basically on the on the job after a bit of initial discussions more than training and he picked it up. Stephen's a bright man, isn't he? He's an intelligent man, as we as we know. So he could bluff his way and and make the pieces fit quite easily, I think. But I think it was his his whole character as well the uh, the coolness of him being able to get out of the situations or explain away situations uh, once he's been put on the spot. And we've heard Stephen talk about meeting Smiles and the others, forging relationships with those who he knows will eventually, on the evidence that, that he produces, will be arrested and no doubt going to spend some significant amount of time in prison. Yeah, I mean, the object of the whole undercover role is to obtain evidence that you can put before a court, isn't it? It's that's what it's about, and and also establishing who's involved, who the characters are. But ultimately, it's obtaining evidence that can be used eventually to convict these people. And how how do you come to terms with that? How do you, as an officer, feel about what you have done in this case to bring a drug network out into the open? and to close it down. But then how do you feel as a person about the way in which you've done that? That's 
that's two very different feelings inside one head, isn't it? Well, I think if you analyse what happened, I mean, Stephen and Eric went undercover and the basic principle of undercover policing is to obtain evidence to convict people, isn't it? That's what you perform that role for. Also to identify other people in the network that you don't know, but the ultimate aim is to gain evidence and that's what every police officer generally does anyway, isn't it? That's what we're there for. But in this occasion and this type of role is that you actually befriending and associating and having a lot to do with these people and and clearly Stephen admits and I'm sure smiles would if if they ever met again that they actually got on well together they liked each other and both were doing their roles their side of the fence and if they met in a pub today I'm sure they'd have a few pints because they did like to drink quite a lot of pints <laughs> But they'd have a few pints and a and a, a reminisce about old times and a laugh and all the rest of it, like two old buddies meeting for the first time in many years, wouldn't they? It's a fine line. Very fine. Anyway, we'd just like to say to everybody, thank you for listening. We're always happy for people to support us and join us in every episode. The next one, which will be our fourth episode, the fourth and final episode, will be joining Stephen for the very final interview uh, of this series. And we'll be talking about all the intelligence that has been gathered and how he plans and goes ahead with those final raids. Which is the culmination of the whole operation. We'd also like to tell you about an exciting new event that we're both involved in, and that's CrimeCon UK, the world's number one true crime event. And it's coming to London on June the 12th and 13th of 2021. You can get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. You can learn from leading criminologists, hear from the families and survivors, meet your favourite true crime podcasters, immerse yourself in forensic science and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered by Crime and Investigation. We'll both be there alongside other amazing true crime podcasters. So why not come, talk to us and ask us questions about this show and the different subjects we've covered. The tickets are on sale now and we have an exclusive offer where you can get 10% off the ticket price when you use the code INVESTIGATORS at the checkout. So for more information about getting your ticket, visit crimecon.co.uk But before that event in June join us both again for the final part of our Operation Julie investigation and that will be in two weeks time so please stay subscribed and join us again to hear how the story ends and what happened to Stephen when it was all over Thank you for taking the time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Richard Ashwell. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. The excerpt at the start of this episode was taken from Undercover, Operation Julie, the inside story by Stephen Bentley and was used with the kind permission of Stephen Bentley and Worldmark Films Limited for exclusive use on this podcast. We are asked to advise that any further use of any part of the excerpts by any means whatsoever is not permissible.
You can find out more information and case notes about Operation Julie by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms, and follow us on all our social media accounts. Make sure you subscribe to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy the series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favorite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.